Church, let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to opening your word this morning, we do pray that your word would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us this morning. Father, as many of us come in here with distractions of all sorts, cares of this world, God, we pray that you would settle our hearts and minds, that you would help us to fix our attention upon your Son, Jesus. That it would be Christ that we see, that it would be Christ that is fixed on the forefronts of our minds. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just wanted to look at you real quick, church. Because life comes at us real hard, doesn't it? We can speak the claims of Christ and speak them like everything is easy and life is peachy and perfect, when the reality is life is hard. And when we look and fix our attention on the cares of this world, even our pursuit of Christ can get all messed up. We begin to think that the Christian faith is about do's and don'ts. We begin to make a list of these are the things I must do and these are the things I should not do. And our eyes leave being fixed upon Christ. Christianity is about Christ. It is about what He has done. Mark Dever said this, he said, Every other religion in the world is a religion of do, but Christianity alone is a religion of done. Beloved, I want you to rest in that for a moment this morning before we continue. It is finished. It is done. Our faith, the gift of faith given by God to us, is not based upon our performance, but upon Christ's perfection. Can we agree this morning that we, in our flesh, we are unrighteous, but that Christ is righteous? Christianity is about Jesus Christ, the righteous. This morning, as we open up God's Word together, I want you to be fixed upon Jesus I want when you leave here this morning for your eyes to be on Christ. And so would you with me open up your Bibles this morning to the letter of 1 John. 1 John, we'll be beginning the second chapter together this morning and not going too far into that chapter. Once you get to 1 John chapter 2, if you'd rise to your feet to honor the public reading of God's Word. First John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. God's word reads, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it reads God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May God bless this reading of his word this morning. Please be seated, church. Now I would venture to guess just in these couple of verses this morning, we could spend a long time of study. A long time looking into what the Apostle John writes here for us. But in that opening line, he writes, My little children, a term of endearment to the beloved, to the saints. He says, I am writing these things that you may not sin. Now we know the main purpose, the overarching purpose of him writing this letter was to give assurance of salvation for believers. We see that in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to keep that overarching purpose in mind, because sometimes we can look at this and say, is this more me looking at whether or not I have salvation or don't have salvation? And is, there a te- is the test to make me fail having any assurance at all? The test that John lays out here is to show you that you do have salvation in Christ Jesus. He lays out this argument in these three different tests throughout this letter. One, based upon doctrine, based upon what you believe. The understanding of who Jesus is that he is the Son of God, that he is the incarnate Son, the second person of the Trinity, that he took on flesh and that he dwelt among us as the God-man, and that he died a substitutionary death in the place of his people. That's the first test. Do you understand who Jesus is? When you proclaim that you know him, is that the Jesus that you know? Well, he goes... There's assurance of salvation through that test. You know the right Jesus. And he says, by knowing the right Jesus, the second test, the second examination, is that there should be fruit of obedience that would flow from that knowledge. And then lastly, the third test in this letter he'll show us is that the main fruit that flows is the fruit of love. That love should be evidenced in the life of those who confess Christ interesting though he writes here at the beginning of what we have as the second chapter that he's writing these things that you may not sin now if you were with us last week you remember where we went last week but i want you to turn back and look what he has just previously argued look back in verse 8 of chapter 1 starting in verse 8 of chapter 1 of first john he says if we say we have no sin We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What is the argument that the Apostle John made there? That sin still dwells in us that the work of the Spirit would reveal sin in us and that we can continually go and confess sin, that we can be cleansed of sin, we can be forgiven of sin. But interestingly enough now, he starts and says, but I'm writing these things 
that you may not sin. Well, what is he saying here? Well, what is he arguing? I would say he's arguing that Jesus Christ, the righteous, has freed his people from sin. Paul would make a a similar claim in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. In Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Those who are in Christ are freed from the power and the bondage of sin. And so for John to start the second chapter and to say simply, I write these things that you should not sin, would be very appropriate to write to the believer. But it would also be absolutely crushing. Let me explain what I mean here. Sin, church, are we clear? Sin should never be the pursuit of the Christian. Never. John would define sin in 1 John chapter 3. You can flip over a page. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. He defines sin. He says in verse 4 in chapter 3, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Notice that. What is sin? It is lawlessness. What, what does that mean? What does it mean, lawlessness? It means it's a refusal to submit to God's law. It's a refusal to submit to God's word. In other words, it's insubordination. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. It's desiring the very thing or the very things that God hates. That is sin. So let's slow down and talk about sin this morning. God's Word is very clear on how the believer is to walk in Christ. For example, God's Word says, Let all bitterness be put away from you. And yet, if you harbor bitterness in your heart, that is sin. God's Word says to forgive others the way that Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Yet, if you hold on to unforgiveness, that also is sin. God's Word says to esteem others higher than yourself. And yet, when you look down upon others, that is sin. Must I go on? We could go on and on and on and look at sin in a very practical way. But sin grieves God. Is that how we look at sin? That it grieves our God? Because God's people, out of response for God loving them, they in turn love God. We know in the fourth chapter of this letter, John writes in verse 19, we love because he first 
loved us. And since we love him, God's people never, never want to grieve him because we love him. Sin should never be something that the child of God premeditates. It means they, they ponder and they think of how to go about it. I love the way that John Piper put this, and I won't flail my arms like he does and jump up from the pulpit, but you can imagine him saying this. John Piper says, Whenever we sin, we join those who call the cross foolishness. If the aim of the cross is the purity of the church and the victory over sin, we cannot honestly regard the cross as the wisdom of God when we sin. Sin says to Christ, I do not regard your suffering as a sufficient incentive to keep me back from this act. You may have died to prevent me from doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Thus sin insults the sufferings of Christ. Now I could tell you, I don't always go that deep when I fall into sin, and I don't consider what it's communicating. And I'm guessing you don't either. But sin should never be taken lightly as a child of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible associates sin with the devil, with the works of darkness. John would argue in the next chapter, chapter 3, that willfully living in sin identifies a person as a child of the devil. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So this is not making me feel so great this morning. What is the purpose of expounding on all this this morning? Why say all these things? Because if John simply wrote in chapter 2 that the point of me writing this is that you would not sin or you may not sin, it would be absolutely appropriate for him to write that. But on the heels of what he wrote in verses 8 through 10, the fact that even the most mature Christians still sin, and that there's still opportunity to confess sin, to be forgiven of sin, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness, means that even when the believer fails, there can still be and there still is assurance of salvation. Say, so, wait a minute. Don't sin or do sin? <laughs> what is the Christian? Are, are they sinning? Are they not sinning? Well, as followers of Christ, it is clear the transformation he does in us is that we constantly are to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily, and to follow Christ. Yet in the midst of that pursuit... In the midst of chasing after Christ, we still sin. We sin in thought, we sin in speech, and we sin in action. And beloved, for those of us who love the Lord, this grieves us. We hate this. We hate the fact that we would sin against our holy God. would weep over sin. But what John writes here, this part of his letter, 
is that the pursuit of the Christian is not to sin, but he's going to give great hope in knowing that there's still sin in our lives. Now, knowing that even the most mature Christians, like Paul the Apostle, still sins, that should never give us a license to sin. And so, well, if, if even the mature Christians sin, let me just go into sin and not worry about sin. We should never think in such a way that I'm going to somehow just go and willfully sin and rebel against God. Now listen, if you are here this morning and you're currently living in unconfessed sin, confess it now. Repent from it now. Hebrews 3.13 makes it very clear that you can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But as the Holy Spirit would illuminate that sin and show you that sin, the invitation is to confess that, to repent from it. Perhaps this morning you're here and you're, you're even plotting, you're planning on sinning. You're making a reservation for sin. You're planning to do what you know you ought not do as a child of God. You're planning to willfully disobey God's word. Remember the way that Piper put it, what that communicates? He said, I do not regard your suffering as a sufficient incentive to keep me back from this act. You may have died to prevent me from doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. To plan to sin, to purpose sin, is to have an improper view of the cross. It's to have an improper understanding of grace. Beloved, do not grieve God. Call out to Jesus the righteous to help you live in obedience to him. John has already claimed, you, he said, you can't claim to have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness at the same time. Peeking ahead to the very next verse that we didn't read this morning, but in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. What does that mean? It means those who know God have their life defined as those who follow God. And so John writes here, My little children, verse 1, I am writing these things that you may not sin. Unlike the false teachers of the day, John understood that sin should be forsaken, that the deeds of the flesh should be put off. That the believer should put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That the new mark of the new self in Christ Jesus is marked by obedience to the Son of God. But here's the balance. Here's where we're getting. If right now you're feeling condemned and you're feeling beat up, like, oh my, what do I do? There's still sin that even in our greatest pursuit of obedience, every believer still sins. As a child of God, no matter how little we see that sin, that sin should break us. 
It should cause us to weep because we love God and we hate for him to be grieved. But here's the difference for the believer. The believer is no longer enslaved to sin. Though we fall in it, we're not in bondage to it. But we still fail and we still fall. And we'll continue to do that on this side of heaven. And so the question then, when, when, when John writes, I am writing these things that you may not sin, how could we ever have assurance? How could we have assurance of salvation then? And the answer is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who intercedes for his people. Look again with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What follows after that? But, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The we he is speaking of is the believer. He says, look, the pursuit for the believer is holiness. Sin should never be an option. However, in this fallen nature, we will fail and we will fall. But he says, here is the hope. That for the believer, you have an advocate with the Father. You have Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, we often speak of Christ as the mediator between man and God. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator, an arbitrator. Someone who brings two opposing parties together for peace and agreement. It's the work of Christ. But in his role as a mediator, he acts as an advocate for his people. This word advocate can be defined as one who is called to another in order to plead their case and cause. So rather than Jesus standing in the middle between us and God. Jesus, our advocate, takes our side. Now stop and think about that for a moment. If you are in Christ, if you've been gifted with repentance and faith in Jesus, then Jesus, at this very moment, is your advocate. He stands or excuse me, he actually sits to the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for you. In Greek, this word in 1 John is paraclete or paracletus. It's only used five times in the New Testament. All five times are used by the Apostle John. The other four times are in the upper room discourse in John chapter 14 through 16. And they all refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends back to heaven. Jesus, excuse me, the first time that Jesus refers to the paraclete is interesting how he words it. In John chapter 14, verse 16, it's a short sentence, I'll read it to you. It's a statement Jesus says. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another paracletus. If Jesus speaks of another, what's he saying about himself? He is one. That he is a helper. 
What we have in our text this morning in 1 John chapter 2 is the same word paracletus is translated advocate. That's how he helps. It could also be translated defender or lawyer. You know, it's interesting, in the ancient world, the advocate was like a modern defense attorney who pleads a defense's case before the judge. And it's been rightly said that every believer has been assigned the greatest defense attorney in the universe. An advocate who every time a crime is committed against the divine, he selflessly and justly defends us with his own righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I like what Matthew Henry wrote about this. Matthew Henry wrote, quote, The clients are guilty. Their innocence and legal righteousness cannot be pleaded. It is the advocate's own righteousness that he must plead for the criminals. It's based upon Christ. It's who he is and what he has done. That on the cross when he said, it is finished, guess what? It's finished. The work was completed. Now, when we hear about Christ pleading our case, we can get this wrong impression that somehow he's like on his knees and he's begging before the throne. Rather, Scripture speaks of him being seated to the right hand of the Father, and he annuls every accusation against his people based upon his own righteousness and his finished work on the cross. Pastor Sean read us this morning from Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, We read, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. No charge can be brought against God's people. Because Jesus Christ the righteous stands there and defends them based upon his own righteousness, based upon his own finished work on the cross. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus, the one who rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, is now the same Christ who is the advocate for his people. And now he lives forever seated at the right hand of God to make intercession for his people. You know, when we think about Christ's work, we often just speak about what he did on the cross. But his work continues. The assurance of salvation that Christ still stands and represents us, that his work stands, that his completed, perfect work on the cross stands. Hebrews 9.24 Speaking about Christ being our defender, Hebrews 9.24 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He continues to intercede for his people. Theologian Louis Burkhoff said this, He said, quote, the perpetual presence of the completed sacrifice of Christ before God contains in itself an element of intercession as a constant reminder of the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous, continues to intercede for us. For all who have repented and trusted in Christ, listen, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And though you grieve over sin, and though you hate sin, and though you long for the day when your worship of God is not corrupted any longer by sin, right now, in heaven, Christ represents you and defends your case before the Father. His righteousness pleads your case. How can we have assurance of salvation? Though I see the transformation in my life, though I see God has taken me from darkness and made me light, yet I still stumble at times into sin. How do I have assurance? Because I have an advocate. One who defends my cause because of his perfect righteousness. His his intercession, excuse me, for you is based upon his atoning work. Since he has merited all that he asked, there's absolute assurance that his intercession is effective. Now, his effective advocacy is based upon his work of propitiation, which John continues to write about here. That Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the one that frees us from sin. Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the one who intercedes for us. But Jesus Christ the righteous is also the one that satisfies God's wrath on our behalf. Continue with me in 1 John chapter 2, looking at verse 2. We read, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John writes, Jesus, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is our propitiation. The Greek word here translated propitiation is used four times in the New Testament. It's used in Romans that we heard read and looked at this morning, Romans 3.25. It's used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And it's used twice in this letter that John has penned. Here in chapter 2, verse 2, and also in chapter 4, verse 10. So what is it? Some of you know. Some of you say that's a big word with a lot of syllables. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice that satisfies the demands of God's justice and appeases his wrath. So I want to speak of one of the greatest dilemmas in all of Scripture. It has to do with the fact that since God is holy and righteous, he must absolutely be just. I'll sit on that for a second. Since he is holy and righteous, he must absolutely be just. And in his perfect justice, he must acquit the innocent, but he must also condemn the guilty. He must punish every violation of the law, every act of disobedience, Listen, flip it around. If he pardons the guilty and does not punish lawbreakers, then he is unjust. But he's holy and he's righteous and he's absolutely just. And if God 
acts in perfect justice towards every sinner and gives them what they rightly deserve, then all mankind would be condemned. I want to remind you of a time when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. We read in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, that the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him, being Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, listen to what the Lord said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. I read that and I have a question, and maybe you follow along and have a question as well. How can God forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and at the same time hold the guilty accountable for their actions? Or the way that Paul speaks regarding sinners in Romans 3.26, he said that God might be the just and the justifier. Here's where this word propitiation comes in. The same righteous God who must punish all sinners for their lawlessness sent his son, his righteous son, to put on flesh and to die in the place of the wicked. That the demands of divine justice against sinners were satisfied through the suffering and death of God's son. God's wrath towards sinners was appeased through Jesus' death. That's why we started this morning. I said, our minds need to be filled up with Jesus Christ the righteous. Our focus needs to be on Him and what He has done. It is through Him, through His death, through the sacrifice of Himself, that a holy, righteous, and just God can be merciful towards sinners and pardon their offenses against Him. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every believer's sin was imputed to Christ, and he bore the wrath of God in their place. And not only was their sin, our sin, beloved, not only was that imputed to him, but his righteousness was imputed to to us, so that every believer can now stand blameless and fully accepted. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a wonderful transaction. Oftentimes I caution, I'm, I can be cynical and say, if it seems too good to be true, it usually is. But you know who said this? God did. And you know, God can't lie. And so this is exactly what happened. Even though it seems so far beyond us that there would be this cosmic exchange, this glorious exchange on our, on our side, that our sin goes to Him and His righteousness to us. It is absolutely how God has ordained it before the foundations of the world. 
that just as Christ is righteous, sinners can be made righteous through him. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, quote, The equation is simple. If God requires perfect righteousness and perfect holiness to survive as perfect judgment, then we are left with a serious problem. Either we rest our hope in our own righteousness, which is altogether inadequate, or we flee to another's righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness not of our own inherently. The only place such righteousness can be found is in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel, end quote. Forgiveness in Christ, yes. But also the satisfaction of God's wrath, the appeasing of his wrath that we have rightly stored up for ourselves by rebelling against a holy God. And so, yes, propitiation is a sense about turning away God's wrath, but it's also about wiping away all sin. That our sins have been expiated through Jesus' sacrifice. Remember the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. So Christ's sacrifice on the cross satisfies God's wrath against His people and takes away all their guilt. You know, the fact that Jesus, Jesus the righteous, his death on a cross can satisfy God's wrath against his people. All of his people speaks of Christ's infinite worth. Think about it. How could one man dying on a cross make payment for the sins of multitudes? One man. How is that possible? How could that one man's sacrifice save a myriad of sinners from an eternity of hell? How could that one man satisfy a holy God, the demands of a holy God, a holy and just God? The answer is, he wasn't just any man. Jesus Christ was fully God. And fully man. And being fully God, his life is of infinite worth. Jesus' infinite worth is what made his sacrifice so great. Think of it. The worth of the God-man is incomparable to all those whom he died for. Infinite worth. John continues right here in verse 2. He says that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. When John writes here that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, he's not embracing universalism here. He's not advocating that everyone will be saved on the basis of Jesus' death. Rather, look at what he says. He says, not for ours only, meaning not for us, the Jews only. He's saying the sacrifice of Christ was not limited to the Jews, but include peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what we see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. 
Revelation 5, 9, we read, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I'm looking around, I'm guessing many of us aren't ethnically Jewish. And so this is a hallelujah, praise the Lord. That it wasn't just for the Jews, but the gospel came to the Gentiles, that we too might be saved. Now I hear accusations against Christians often saying, Christians have this high view of themselves, they're, they're haughty, and they think that they're better than everybody else. I'm sorry, but if you know the truth of the gospel, you are humbled. That though you are a wretch, a sinner, that God in his grace and his mercy would save you. That is a humbling thing, not a boastful thing. Our only boast would be in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the righteous. But have you ever slowed down and stopped and asked, why would God save us from his wrath? Well, we already talked about what, what sin is and the rebellion and the insubordinance against a holy God. Why would he send his son to die in the place of his people and to appease his wrath? The way I think is, why not just let them die in their sins? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. You can flip over. It's probably only one page, maybe two pages to the right. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. We read this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a, the propitiation for our sins. Why don't you stop and think about that? I mean, there is no better evidence of God's unconditional love and His unfailing love towards his people, than by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Many of you are familiar with Romans 5.8. It reads, But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love. Love that's initiated by God. He initiated his love. And his love towards a sinful world by giving his son to cover sin and to remove guilt. Again, we heard this morning from Romans, Romans chapter 3. I want you to listen to it again. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23, read this. The reality that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Guess who that includes? Look around. Look to the person to your left, to your right, in front of you. I'll jump up and down before you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul continues to write, And they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Did you catch the last part? Christ perfect work. His finished work on the cross must be received by faith. 
This is not something you can muster up. It is a gift of God. That the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ make sense because the Holy Spirit has revealed them to you. That this morning, you know that it's Jesus Christ who is the righteous one. That it is him who has died in the place of of his people. I want, I want you to listen to those who have experienced this truth, who have radically been taken from darkness to light by the grace of God. Puritan Henry Smith said it this way. He said, He hideth our unrighteousness with his righteousness. He covereth our disobedience with his obedience. He shadoweth our death with his death, that the wrath of God cannot find us. That was so endearing, like so... Like, he understood it. He, he got it. Another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, also got it. Thomas Brooks said, quote this. He said, I am his by purchase, and I am his by conquest. I am his by donation, and I am his by election. I am his by covenant, and I am his by marriage. I am wholly his. I am peculiarly his. I am universally his. I am eternally his. Once I was a slave, but now I am a son. Once I was dead, but now I am alive. Once I was darkness, but now I am light in the Lord. Once I was a child of wrath, an heir of hell, but now I am an heir of heaven. Once I was Satan's bondservant, but now I am God's freeman. Once I was under the spirit of bondage, but I am under, now under the spirit of adoption that seals up to me the remission of my sins, the justification of my person, and the salvation of my soul. End quote. Thomas Brooks got it. He understood it. He understood that it's all based not upon his works, not upon his performance, but upon Christ's perfection. Now, as I read those to you this morning, these statements of, of Henry Smith and, and Thomas Brooks, can you say the same confidently this morning? Because it wasn't complicated. Jesus did not make it complicated. Jesus said this. He said, repent and believe. Turn from your ways and turn to Christ. Turn from your pursuit of sin and turn to God. And believe the claims. Look, you can't do this on your own. It's got to be a gift from God. And if you're here this morning and you hear those claims that, that, that Henry Smith made and Thomas Brooks, and, and they melt your soul in just sweet assurance, then praise God for his work of grace in your life. Praise God for reminding you this is not about what we do to earn or to merit God's favor, but instead it's based upon what Christ has done. It is finished. So, beloved, I started this morning by telling you my desire for you this morning is that you would fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the righteous. You got things going on in life? Got difficulties, cares? Fix your eyes back upon Jesus. With your eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, the righteous, you will abide in him. And by abiding in him, you'll put to death the deeds of the flesh. But remember, 
as you do that, not only did he die in your stead, but he lives to make intercession that he is your advocate. That you could rest assured of being a child of God because Jesus Christ the righteous pleads your cause not based upon your actions, but based upon his perfection, based upon his righteousness. So may the righteousness of Christ and the goodness of Christ continue to be on the forefronts of your mind that we would honor him and glorify him through his grace, by his grace, and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word, we are reminded of the greatness of the gift that we have in Christ Jesus. We are reminded of his sacrifice, the laying down of his own body in the place of his people. We are reminded of what he has done to appease your wrath. That your wrath would be satisfied. That sin, the guilt and stain of sin would be taken away. Oh, Father, what else could we want? What else would bring comfort to our souls? What else would strengthen our minds and our resolve but to know Jesus Christ, the righteous. The one who not only has died in our place, but currently, this very moment, continues to intercede. That he is our advocate, that he pleads our case. Father, we thank you for your abundance of grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to convict those in here who are wayward and in sin that you would draw them in repentance and faith. Father, for us who are going through difficult seasons of life, would you help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ the righteous and keep them fixed there? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.